Never was anyone like him Never will one be the same A tiny babe, an infant king, savior We worship and
Good morning. Would you please stand as we have our responsive reading for this morning? Keeping with the uh, theme of the season, I thought this this particular uh, part of Scripture was applicable. This morning, if you would turn uh, to Isaiah chapter 40, for the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 721. We'll read through verses 1 through 11. Isaiah, of course, lived uh, quite a bit before Jesus' uh, coming in Advent, uh, but I find that this is pretty prophetic for that occasion. So this morning, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. I'll begin with the first verse, congregation, the even number of verses. Comfort, oh comfort, my people, says the Lord. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead to the news. Amen. Please be seated. Like I was saying, with uh, the prophet Isaiah, he gives many prophecies as to regards of who the Messiah is, what to expect, what to look for in his coming. And here I kind of see it as that kind of a mission in his talking about the coming of the Messiah as, of course, we're going to read in the coming weeks of him coming as a child and all. But I also see this sort of as as a, a message of the Messiah's coming, where he's going to bring the comfort. Comfort, oh, comfort my people. And talking about how um, the Messiah will come and and lay iniquity, uh, That uh, talking about Jerusalem, but the nation of Israel, that her iniquity has been removed. And we know that with the Messiah's birth, his growing and Jesus' going to the cross, that he does remove that iniquity, the sin. Verse 3 is a prophetic verse, of course, talking about John the Baptist and the mission that he is going to be fulfilling. That voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. And he did. He was the proclaimer of our Savior. 
having been born only six months before Jesus, but yet having that mission to go out and proclaim who the Lamb of God is going to be. In his baptizing Jesus, the uh, heavens opened up and they knew that this was the Lamb of God, the Son um, who was sent. Throughout the rest of these verses, it seems to be the one that is calling out and listening in that the, the, that of Israel who ought to be listening to their Messiah. Listen, knowing that their communion with God, their fellowship with God was only but a temporal thing. Whether it was dependent upon the sacrifices that were made or the priesthood's offering or what have you to, in order to appease God's wrath against them because of their sins, it was the Messiah who was going to come and bring forth the life that would last forever. Um, verse 8 at the end there, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And that is, uh, as we know, going to be Jesus who does come. And that word will last forever. So get up and get yourself up on high mountain, O Zion. Um, o Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear to all the cities. Here is your God. As it was announced to um, Mary and Joseph that this child's name would be Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnate God in the presence of his people kind of get a picture of his work here in um, um, especially in verse 11 like a shepherd he will tend his flock in his arm in his arm he will gather um, the lambs and that's what his mission was was to gather his people to bring them into his kingdom that second exodus that we speak of that, that's what his mission was to do. So here it, it, it seems to me as though it's an applicable uh, set of verses to read and to think about at this time of our uh, celebration of the first Christmas in Jesus' coming. Okay, thank you. Okay. Amen, Pastor Steve. You know, I want to say something to that. I, uh, one thing that Pastor Steve that stood out to me, this is not going to surprise anyone, was, and he did, past tense. He did. He did it. You know, one thing that frustrates me about the Advent season is that, unfortunately, a lot of our brethren, they're looking at this through, yes, they're appreciating what Christ did by incarnating himself, but they're also using this season for expecting what Christ is going to yet do. Now, hopefully, each and every one of us do expect Christ to do things in our lives, right? Perfectly as we're uh, possessing and increasing in the things that we see listed in Second Peter chapter 1. If you grow in knowledge, you should be expecting something to come from that growth in knowledge. However, as a church that focuses in on a thinking faith, and we look to that word that does indeed endure forever, um, I'm hoping, and I've been impressing this upon us, that we would look at this season with gratitude and responsibility. That we would be those people that that passage in Isaiah 40 points out that would say, there is our God. You see? That's the goal. So when we grow in the Advent season, it's giving us opportunity to know our God, to know what it is that we're pointing people to, and to prayerfully act responsible with what it is that the whole season celebrates, that Christ came into this world, the Word became flesh, so that we might, his body, might be able to make known a message. And that sort of leads me into my, uh, my message this morning. If you need a title, which I'm one of those people, I need a title, that's why I always say that. If you need a title, um, the message is called Strange Fire Runs Contrary 
to gratitude and responsibility. If you're looking in the bulletin, the G and R there is gratitude and responsibility. So that's going to be my theme for this season. That's where I'm growing. As I'm thinking through the scriptures, particularly looking at the book of Leviticus and seeing the types and anti-types in regards to worship, um, I've last week specifically, I really, I saw this. It, it spoke to me where I said, that's the theme for this season, to walk with gratitude for what God has given us. Specifically looking at Leviticus, he's given us a proper way to worship him because he desires to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. So we see that all throughout the scriptures. And that should call us to, number one, be, you know, uh, have gratitude that he has given us this. He's shown us how we can worship him in spirit and in truth, and that's through Jesus Christ, not through the Levitical law, no worries. Um, however, it also calls us, it beckons us to a higher responsibility to really be those people that can say, here is your God. And we're pointing out to this world the peace that surpasses all understanding, that which brings hope, faith, and joy, the things that are celebrated during this Advent season. Famed preacher John MacArthur, I imagine most of us have heard of him, has, a, has hosted a conference which is referred to as the Strange Fire Conference. And the goal of this conference is to examine doctrines and practices of the Christian church and to determine whether or not we are guilty of offering up, quote-unquote, strange fire. In the Hebrew, this is zuresh, is strange fire. And it means foreign fire, something to bring something that is foreign, that was, again, God had made known the way, the one true God had made known the way that he desired to be worshipped. He gives Israel his covenant, this covenant with him. He tells them how, as we've been looking at through the book of Leviticus, what sort of offerings they should bring to him. He tells them how to worship him. He, tells, he establishes a priesthood. And he says, this is the priesthood that is going to represent you to me. This is how they are to represent this faith, how they are to represent me to you and to bring these sacrifices and so forth. What we're going to read today in Leviticus chapter 10 is a story of two, uh, two young men, I guess I'll say they're young men, um, that decide that despite the fact that God told this priesthood what they were to do down to the minutia, the very, every little detail, they still decide they'd rather go a foreign way. They'd rather do it their way than the way that was made known. And obviously the question that I'll proceed all of this with is, how do you suppose that worked out? So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 10 and take a look at the text. We're just going to read a couple verses here, 1 through 7. Leviticus 10, 1 through 7. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 112. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came down from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Moses called also to Michelle and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come forward, carry your relatives away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. So they came forward and carried them, still in their tunics, to the outside of the camp, as Moses had said. Then Moses said to Aaron and to his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, so that you will not die, and he will not become wrathful against all the congregation. But your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, shall bewail the burning 
which the Lord has brought about. You shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, or you will die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they did according to the word of Moses. Now, if you remember last week, I showed that in the, the previous chapters, it talks about do this or you will die. You must keep the charge of the Lord. If you fail to do that, you will die. And I sort of gave us the anti-type, and perfectly I impressed that upon us, that we're not living our faith in fear. We're not doing the things that we do in fear of God, that if we don't do them or we do them, that we're going to die. Rather, in our lives as Christians in the New Covenant, we would understand it's do these things and live. Listen to the teachings of our Lord, put them into practice so that you would be the wise man that builds his house upon a rock. Right? Do this and live. We don't live this fearful religion. Religion, Perfect love casts out fear is what the uh, epistle of John tells us. So I don't want us to have this attitude. I don't want to enter into reading this with this con- condemning attitude that, you know, how dare we offer up strange fire. But I do believe there's some things here that we can uh, pick out and we can understand. So the first question we want to ask ourselves is, what exactly is the sin of Nadab and Abihu? And then, of course, why was that sin so bad that it, mer- it merited severe judgment, such as death by God's immediate death by God's hands? In common Christian thought, we use this passage to talk about the holiness of God, the reverence that we should have for godly things and how we should approach God. Oddly enough, this seems to be an early reference to the strange comments I hear people make. If I go to church, I'll burn or I'll get cast down or God will strike me dead right there at the door. My often immediate thought is, what are you doing that is so foreign and offensive to the truth of God that he has made known that you cannot even enter into a church? Like that's... You know, and then obviously the next charge is change it. And then you can enter in and you could be fine. I don't imagine anyone wants to live with the prospect that they are offending God. Worse yet, that they're offending God to the extent that he's going to strike them dead. Granted, some may boast that they don't care. I know, unfortunately, a few of those. They don't care if they offend God, which is usually ignorance rather than honest admission. Those people that say they don't care, usually they do. They're just not really being honest with the way they're thinking in their mind. However, again, most of us, speaking here to us, we don't want to offend God, surely not in a way that he would strike us dead. Before I share some rabbinical wisdom about this passage, I do want to be clear. It is the atoning work of Jesus Christ that has made known the truth and has allowed us to be a people that were stuck in darkness, to be freed from that darkness, coming into a marvelous light so that we would declare the praises of him. It's not our walking worthy in our own estimation. It's not us determining what we might think strange fire is and therefore not doing that. Again, it is Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice alone that allows us to have this communion. Thereby that we don't you know, point at other people that are doing the strange fire and say, oh, well, they're doing that and we're better than them. This is a season where we should be remembering it's only through Jesus Christ that we've been afforded the opportunity to declare praises of his marvelous light. Our strange fire could very well become efforts of self-righteousness, efforts of making our own amends. Therefore, we must always remember it's all glory to God through Jesus Christ that has allowed us to live and worship God in spirit and in truth. That being so, we can surely examine this passage and the rabbinical wisdom to walk more appreciative with gratitude and responsibility in regards to how we approach worship. And and again, worship, I'm not talking about our singing. I'm talking about our worship, our lives, how we live out our lives to the glory of God. So that's what I want to do. I want us to look at this passage here in Leviticus 10 and not to become so religious to the point that, you know, we, we judge other people. 
for their strange fire because unfortunately some are accustomed to doing that, but rather that we would charge ourselves, that we would examine ourselves this morning and say, am I guilty of any of these things? Am I wandering into things that, you know, perfectly you all know that, you know, just because you do those things, you're not going to be struck dead. But again, it should cause us to have a regard for the Lord. It should cause us to grow. I found it interesting that there are a variety of opinions on why God's judgment was so exacting. If you read the rabbis, they're all kind of all over the place. Some rabbis have even denied the story as they feel it runs against the character of God. See how that's problematic. You know, they say, well, no, the the story doesn't really work with God being loving. He wouldn't strike somebody dead. I know some of you may know people that are like that. They seem to think they know better than God. Like, God wouldn't do that. Well, he did. That's the fact is, is he did. And uh, that's one thing that often frustrates me is people that seem to determine the character of God outside of the way that he has made it known. If I may say, I think that's what Nadab and Abihu did. They discerned on their own judgment. They leaned on their own understanding. As we see in the Proverbs, it tells us that that leads to destruction. Good example of leading to destruction. Leaning upon their own understanding. Glad to say I'm not numbered among those that make up my own view of God's character. And I would impress upon us, I know that most of us are there as well. We don't surmise our own understanding of what God should do or how he should have acted or what would be inappropriate for him. There's, you know, again, we all... Here, I know that we all understand that God does have that very loving and gracious attribute, but he also has a very wrathful and sin-condemning attribute. That, you know, there is that bullet judgment attitude. You know, there's definitely both of those attributes in the Godhead. I believe this story to be true, emphatic about God's judgment, and surely this is inspired truth that we should walk worthy of. So let's talk a little bit. I'm going to share some rabbinical wisdom here. Um, why did these two sons of Aaron have to die. Before we get into that, I want to share this rabbinical, com- uh, this rabbinical thought. Quote, common to these and to other similar approaches, it is the belief that only a global, deeply powerful transgression, transcending the ritual backdrop against which it has occurred, could possibly have merited the dramatic punishment God meted out. In other words, what we're reading here in Leviticus 10 is it's a story of sacrifices, right? We've been reading from Leviticus chapter 1 all the way up to here about sacrifices. When I discern what Nadab and Abihu did, yes, in the, the physical, in that very moment, it was a sacrificial thing that they disobeyed. But I'm sure you all agree with me that there's something deeper than that that they had violated. It wasn't that they offered up the wrong sacrifice or that they decided to you know, bring a bull instead of a goat or anything like that. That's Surely God's not going to strike somebody dead for those type of things. I would agree with that. But I think there was a deep-seated issue there. There was something more rooted in what they were doing. What were they saying by offering up strange fire? What, you know, and again, I'm going to offer up some theories that the rabbis have offered as to what was the true sin. Because again, I, I don't believe it was just the ritual aspect that they had gotten wrong. But there was something deeper than that. Sort of like when we sin. You know, when you sin, it's not necessarily the sin that is the problem. It's the fact that you think it's okay to act like that or that you think you know better than what God is telling you. We're, we've been called. It says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it to the full. And let me correct myself. Not it. The word of God says that, I, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it to the full. So when we find ourselves living in ways that are not life to the full and we're listening to the thief, that's the sin. That we're listening to that, that again, this, it's not the thing that you might find yourself doing. It's the fact that you're listening to the fact that you think you know better than God. You're leaning on your own understanding. So I'm going to preface this text that I believe that's what Nadab and Abihu did. 
I believe they leaned on their own understanding. They determined they knew better than what God's specific commands were. That I had this wouldn't bother them. We could, we could do it our way. We could do a little bit, mix it with a little bit of my own logic, my own thinking. And uh, I've noticed I'm not too far off, so I'm going to share. So the rabbis, the rabbis say, uh, the first thing would be Aaron's sons died because they dared to determine the law in the presence of their teacher, Moses, erroneously relying upon a source in the text. If you read in Leviticus chapter 1, it does say that Aaron and his sons are going to be the ones that will place fire on the altar. So they, they're just kind of walking worthy of that. The problem is, is that they, did, they acted contrary to his instructions. Obviously, he told them the type of sacrifices to do, and they decided, we'll do it our own way. So what sin is this? In both covenants, the old covenant, there was a mediator. It was Moses. Listen to Moses. He said it. It comes from God. Do it. Do it the way Moses said. Matt, you know, in, the, in Christian circles, we're very big on when you read through the Torah. God is very clear on how he wants things done. To each measurement, to the cubit, he tells you literally what he wants done. I want you to build it this many cubits, not, not you know, 17 cubits, not 18 cubits, not 17 and a half. And he wants it built the exact same way that, you know, he the way that he said to do it. In the new covenant, we have Christ. Jesus says, if you listen to my words, you put them into practice, you're like the wise men that has built your house on the rock. So we have to listen. That's why I love that uh, at the transfiguration, right? You see Moses and Elijah appear. And then what does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's the point. Listen to him. So the first commandment, the first thing that we need to know if we're looking at Nadab and Abihu is they decided they weren't going to listen to their mediator. So what wisdom can we get from that? Listen to your mediator. Listen to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says about being the wise man building his house on the rock. The second thing, I found this interesting. They entered the temple in a drunken state. Support for this passage is derived from the immediate subsequent passage. If you look, uh, if you read Leviticus 10, 1 through 7, and then all of a sudden you get to verse 9, it says, do not drink wine or strong drink. It's strange, it just shows up right there. So that's interesting. So the rabbis had said that, that the reason being that after this story, God immediately begins to talk about do not drink wine or strong drink is that some would suppose that Nadab and Abihu had entered into the temple drunk and were offering up sacrifices. Of course, we read in the, in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18, that we are not to be drunk with wine, but that instead we are to be drunk with the Spirit of God, that we are to be filled with the Spirit of God. Some translations actually do use the word drunk with the Spirit. But... Uh, so again, we're supposed to be not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit of God. So right there, that's an obvious one. They were drunk. Uh, the third thing that some have supposed they did wrong was that they failed to, confo- uh, to confer with Moses, Aaron, and with each other. They each acted independently. You see, in the body of Christ, right, we, we understand this. We're a corporate unit. We're, we're, supposed to, we're not supposed to be acting independently in many areas. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14.40, in regards to our worship, it says, let everything be done decently and in order. It's impossible if everybody's doing their own thing and guessing the way they want to do it, like Nadab and Abihu. We have to be a people that are of united mind. Ephesians 4.4, that's why it talks about the one hope, the one faith, the one Father, the one Lord, the one baptism that we're all united on. And many ministers are very emphatic on that we need to have that one that one hope. We need to be united. We're not allowed to just kind of wander around and have our own individual perspectives. That's, you know, again, that seems very similar to Nadab and Abihu, where they sort of thought about it on their own, by their own estimation. They acted independently. The fourth thing would be that they longed for the death of their leadership. 
This is, again, now some of this is more presuppositional, things that people are reading into the text. But some would say that Nadab and Abihu's sin here was that they wanted Aaron and Moses, they wanted a rush to the job. I have to admit, so, so I, I went to uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma, uh, last, what, in uh, August or July. I went in July, and Dr. Don K. Preston does videos, right, on... Uh, on um, the morning musings, right? And he sits in his chair and he has his nice little desk with the um, Don Preston, you know, nameplate right in front. So when I visited, we got brought to his office and uh, somebody dared me, I'm not going to mention any names as I'm being recorded, but somebody dared me to uh, go sit in the seat. Go sit in the seat. And when I sat in that seat, you know what I thought about? It, I said, I think I'm getting in the place way before I'm supposed to. You know, I don't know if I should be sitting here. And sure enough, Don Preston came to me and he said, you can't just jump in my seat. You got to wait your turn. You know, and obviously because Don has a lot of influence. So it was a big joke about the, me stepping in front of Don's influence and just sitting in his seat. And I believe that that's what some would suppose Nadab and Abihu were doing here with more of a vicious intent, though. They wanted to just jump in and get rid of the old leadership. And obviously you would see that's envy. It's problematic. And then the fifth one is they refuse to marry. Yes, they refuse to marry because they feel no woman is worthy of their exalted status. Again, you can see how this is all kind of read into the text here. Um, but some rabbis would suppose that that was Nadab and Abihu's problem, was that they were these men that felt so spiritual that they would never get married because who can attain to where I'm at? They're just going to bring me down. And obviously you know that this is pride. Right? There's something that we can just identify with. So some of the things I've already marked out for you is that you're to listen to your mediator. You're not to be drunk. You're to not act independently. Again, find unity in the body. You know, talk to each other, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. Talk to each other. Let's make sure we're of the one hope, the one faith, the one baptism. Um, we're not to live with envious attitudes. We're not to have pride. And then the last one that they offer up is that these men had deliberately failed to have children. I guess some would say that Nadab and Abihu were at the time in their culture that I guess it was expected of them to have children at that point. And that due to their, um, their disobedience and wanting to further the covenant, probably because they don't want their children to act like them. If they're the ones that are trying to push Aaron and Moses out of the way, who wants to have children that are going to act like that? So now Nadab and Abihu, uh, again, this is envy. It's all envy. So there's things that we can sum up from this whole story here. It was either they don't listen, they were drunk, they're envious, or they're prideful. All things that we should be convinced we need to move away from. So if we can cover our bases, we can know we will not sin like Nadab and Abihu. We should feel compelled by this story to walk with reverence, gratitude, and responsibility. This story should remind us of how God desires to be worshipped. I also want to consider another perspective as to what these two men did wrong and how that informs our perspective of walking responsibly with God's truth. Sharing again from the rabbinical wisdom here. According to commentaries who build on this text here, Aaron's older sons are righteous individuals who do not consciously sin either before or on this fateful celebratory day. Their failure instead ironically stems from a spontaneous act of religious passion. Moved by the power of God's presence, awestruck by the pageantry of the moment, Nadab and Abihu set out on a path of their own design in an attempt to draw near to an imminent God. In doing so, they turn their back on the true path of religious worship as outlined in the Torah. Let me explain that. You ever find people that, and I know some of these people, and I know those of you out there know some of these people as well. You ever find people in your life that they love God. They don't know anything about Him. Nothing about Him. 
but they just love God. They love him. They love God. They, they want to worship him in the ways that I sit there and I wonder that God doesn't want to be worshipped like that. That's not what he said to do. You know, and maybe they're uh, caught up in whatever system of worship that they're using, and they just believe that's the way. That's the way that you have to do it. And a lot of times it's, it's uh, what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10 about his generation, that they have a zeal for God, but it's not based on knowledge. You know, it's, it's, they're very zealous. Matter of fact, another rab- rabbi says it like this. We find ourselves learning that Nadab and Abihu did not incur formal guilt through transgression of any of the commandments associated with their service. However, their sin arose from a desire to draw near, to cling to the Creator, not, however, according to the dictates of the Lord, but according to the dictates of their own hearts. And unfortunately, I know a lot of people like that. I already lamented this morning about one of my friends that seems to be going that route. He wants to make it up on his own. He wants to just, you know, he has such a religious zeal for God, he's, you know, that he's going to make up his own style of worship. Guilty of Nadab and Abihu's sin, making it up. Furthermore, the rabbi has, says here, the worship of the Lord is based neither on fleeting moments of personal ecstasy. Catch that. The true worship of the Lord is not based upon fleeting moments of emotional ecstasy. Many of our brethren can hear that message this morning. That it's not about this feeling that you got in a worship service. It's, you know, it's, it's bigger than that. It's not periodic. It's not something that, you know, I used to go to worship service where it was like the altar call was the moment where God showed up. It was, you know, I was like, man, he's been here the whole day. You know, we could have had a little bit more passion in our, when we leave church than all that we're showing right there. It's true worship is dedication of one's soul. It's the acceptance of the yoke of heaven. And now our yoke, I'm not going to read the rabbi's wisdom there because they seem to think it's the Torah and the mitzvah following the commandment. Um, ours is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Torah and the commandment. Jesus is the fulfillment. Rabbi share within Judaism, the path toward sanctity is clearly delineated. God's presence in our lives is assured only through our ongoing acceptance of and obedience to his will. The text wants us to understand that Nadab and Abihu died before they could achieve their goal. Their desire was to draw near to the Lord, but it says in the text, when they drew near, they died. Their goal was to draw near and to feel exalted, to feel the presence of God, but they did it their own way. They went about establishing it according to their own righteousness, their own estimation, their own thoughts. Had Nadab and Abihu been allowed to proceed unimpeded with their worship, Ultimately, what we see is ritual anarchy. It's every man can do it his way. At most critical moment in the development of the Jewish tradition, the message that would have been conveyed to the world would have been, everything's acceptable. Follow your heart. Determine your own mode of expression. The path of God can be designed by you. There's no need for uniformity of thought or practice. You can individually search for spirituality in your lives. Thank God that was not the message that's been conveyed. Another rabbi makes the point that only an emphatic and immediate response from God could salvage the moment and set the Jewish nation upon its spiritual path. It actually says nuanced spiritual path, Vicky. Believe it or not, in my writing here, it says in the nuanced, we had to talk about nuance, the word nuance this morning. Um, but again, the nuanced spiritual life, meaning that the life that God had delineated for them. And uh, what this point here, this rabbi is making, is that it was with Nadab and Abihu's sin, it was only, the only thing that would fix that sin was God intervening, an emphatic and immediate action would fix it. 
And sure enough, here we are in a church in 2018. And each and every one of us should be able to say that when we were guilty of sins like Nadab and Abihu, when we were those that should be struck down by the Lord, that it took an emphatic and immediate response from God. And perfectly, we all know what that emphatic, there we go, an immediate response was. It's Jesus. That's how our God would be made known. In fulfillment of that passage that Pastor Steve talked about this morning, God would be made known by God sending Jesus, God coming in the flesh to make clear the right way to worship. As we talked about in our Sunday school this morning, Jesus said, I am he, I am. That's the right way to worship. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We had a good booklet that we're actually examining in our Sunday school, so prayerfully this will be a further charge to examine that booklet. Because he's made it known. And if we truly follow those, the things that Jesus says about himself, how he identifies himself, we won't have to be guilty of sins like Nadab and Abba. We will move away from spiritual pride. We will move away from envy. We will move away from these things because we'll be listening to and putting into practice the words of our Messiah. So my question would be, are you grateful for revealed truth? Are, are you, when we say we're grateful, that means that we're going to want more of it. We're going to want to grow in it. We're going to want to make sure that we really know that we believe the truth has been revealed. How does your gratefulness for the truth beckon you to be living responsibly for it? What commitments regarding gratitude and responsibility can you make this Christmas season as we continue to see the fruition of Christ in us? Because this is the glorified body. And I want to just end with a quote from the song that Meredith had sung because the the song actually identified what that immediate and emphatic response was. It says, A special delivery, wrapped up in love, bound by a promise, sealed by a dove, and filled with the Spirit, carried by grace. And of course, I'd like to say that last line there. You know where I'm going by the look on my face. Amen? Let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you for our identity in you. We thank you, Lord, that we are not to be a people like Nadab and Abihu that offer up strange fire, Lord, but that you have made known that which you desire from us. That you desire a people, Lord, that would follow the instruction, that we would love from a pure heart, that we would have a good conscience toward you and man, and that we would have a sincere faith. Lord, we thank you for everything that you've provided. Your word tells us you've given everything to us pertaining to life and godliness. As we press into this season, Lord, looking forward to a Christmas and fellowship with friends and family, Lord, increase our knowledge, increase our knowledge of you so that we would truly be appreciative of all that we have. And Lord, as we grow in that appreciation, challenge us with responsibility. Challenge us that we are those that will say, here is our God. Build us up so that we can offer that wisdom and that peace to the people around us, Lord. We thank you for everything you've given to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.